Can you hear me fine in back? Yes. Toward the end of his life, the Buddha wandered to many places. And in each place, the Royal Park on Vulture Peak, the Mango Grove, in the cool wood, in each place, he said, this is the teaching that I offer to you, the teaching on sila, samadhi, and panya, or prajna. Samadhi means collectedness, concentration, um, reflectiveness, mindfulness, meditation, focus. Prajna, or panya, means wisdom, enlightened awareness, transcendental wisdom, true self-knowledge. Sila, Samadhi, and Prajna. These are the three facets of awakening and the foundation in all three traditions for Buddhist practice. And tonight I want to talk about uh, Sila. Sila is goodness, really. It's the good heart. And I want to talk about it by looking at the, pri- the five precepts that we took together from a contempl- contemplative point of view, like how these precepts can be useful to us innerly. So the word sila, it actually means virtue, but sometimes, um, or morality, and I like ethics or integrity. It's actually a beautiful Sanskrit and Pali word. It might be Shila in Sanskrit, Sila in Pali. But it really means, the beautiful part, it really means that which cools, the kind of broiling, um, boiling, intense conflicts and reactivity that visit the mind. It's like, it's like sitting under a cool waterfall or Um, just feeling a soft, cool breeze when we're in the heat of some kind of blazing emotions. And it's, sila is where we can really find relief. It's, I like the, I like the word integrity because it means wholeness. It's like the undivided heart. And when our heart is undivided and sila can help us uh, move toward that, then it really is a refuge for us. So externally, it means not harming, ahimsa, nonviolence. Internally, it means having integrity and compassion for ourselves and our world. And, um, and innately, it's really that sense of, well, we are actually loath to use the word perfection because it sets up so many ideas of idealism and striving, but the sense of, the Buddhist good news that that our innate, our clear mind, it's, it's something that we already have. It's the original blessing of, um, of Buddhist psychology, understanding that our own mind is innately clear and calm and sane and good. And it just gets covered over by our sense that we're not good enough or imperfect in some way. But the secret teaching is really that there is nothing to do and nowhere to go. And then we devote many um, 
of the Dharma talks and, and teachings and sort of how do we find nowhere. So I want you to just do an exercise for a moment, uh, for a moment to just contemplate your own sila, your own goodness, and see what happens when I ask you to just look for a few minutes into your own sense of your own goodness or virtue, um, to see what happens. I know for me, when I first did this, my mind went immediately to all of my shortcomings, all of the ways in which I just maybe wasn't quite good enough. And reflecting on our goodness, actually directing our attention toward our own goodness, is a way of retraining our brains, and it really brings a sense of lightness to the practice. Nyaponikatera, wonderful old monk who wrote The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, he said, to that which we bring attention, to that does the mind or heart incline. So what we pay attention to over and over becomes a habit where our mind goes. And We know now, too, from the neuroscientists that where we bring attention, that's where the neurons fire, and that the neurons that fire together wire together. Now, this is how experience is always shaping the brain. It's actually changing the structure of our brains. And it's called neuroplasticity. It's all the rage now to learn about and talk about neuroplasticity. But here's the thing that people often forget. Neuroplasticity is always on. It's not just on when we practice metta, or on during the moments when we're self-aware, have a moment of mindfulness here and there. It's on all the time. And we're always practicing something. So the question is, what are we practicing? And this is where uh, the five precepts can come in. Now, these are not a set of rules that we apply to ourselves, you know, as if we're sort of teenagers at heart and there's someone or somebody telling us what to do and trying to control us. And when I actually began to practice, I was young and the precepts were, quite frankly, unappealing to me. They weren't something, you know, that was interesting to hear about or to think about applying in my life. Oh, I mean, you know, not killing or stealing or things we are usually doing, right? But um, but I realized at some point in my sitting that these precepts were actually a protection for our minds and hearts, that it was a lot easier to be clear sitting down on the cushion 
if in fact there had been mindfulness around these areas of life. So they're really a path to clarity and happiness. And we're gonna, I want to look at them, they're just briefly, they're literal or outer meaning because um, that's less relevant to us in retreat, but the inner or compassionate meaning of them, um, sometimes called the essential or secret meaning too. So the first one, um, I vow to cherish and protect all life, not to kill. When I was um, in Delhi, uh, this, I guess it was December, uh, beginning of January, I took a, a group of people to India on a pilgrimage trip. And one of the things that we did after some days of retreat was to visit um, a Jain temple. And I wanted to do this because I was interested in the traditions that were alive at the time of the Buddha. And here is a tradition that was happening when the Buddha was alive. And the Jain monks practice, um, I would say, extreme nonviolence is their practice. They filter water to make sure they get microscopic beings of it. And, and taken to the logical extension, um, they actually don't, the monks who, um, they actually don't wear clothes because there are really no clothes that aren't harming. And it was pretty interesting to visit the temple and to see it was a kind of, um, actually it reminded me of a sukkah, a kind of lean-to with a naked monk sitting in it. And he gave us some beautiful teachings. And then uh, we went upstairs and there were other monks at various stages of learning how to go naked in the winter. So some of them had um, a little space heater in a lean-to inside a room. And some of them had the lean-to inside a room, but with no space heater. They had graduated to that. Anyway, it was a very interesting practice of not killing. Um, here in retreat, you know, we're pretty protected from killing, and we just try to be attentive to all forms of life in the literal way. Uh, I found this New Yorker cartoon. You can't really see it, so I'll describe it to you, but it shows two cavemen, and one has a club and kind of a slightly fierce expression, at least a frown on his face, and the other one's standing there with wearing his skin and a, holding a spear. And they're saying, one of them is saying, you know, I blame all the violent cave paintings. <laughs> so here we're actually not blaming something outside of ourselves. The devil made us do it. We're really taking responsibility for um, our own ability to generate compassion. And Adrian talked last night about having this spirit of generosity and compassion of mindfulness itself, this non-intrusive, non-interfering attention that is not trying to annihilate anything, that we're not trying to annihilate everything but the breath, that we're uh, not trying to, you know, like those computer games, like shoot down our thoughts and just annihilate them, but that we can allow things to appear and disappear, to see how sensations, thoughts, feelings come and, and go. And uh, 
and still focus on the breath. In the Zen training, we had vows that we chanted every, at the end of every day of practice, and the Bodhisattva vows. And the first one goes like this, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And this was a perplexing vow. How could I save all sentient beings? Another way that, the way that I understand it now, goes more like this. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. And to free them all means letting them be just the way they are. Allowing them to appear and disappear, to um, appear, persist, change, fall away, to let them have their life and being. And it means the many being within us, the many beings who inhabit our own hearts, not just the many beings out there. And that's a hard one. How do we free or be with, find a way to include our relentless critic? Or maybe some internalized abuser who downloaded all of their own rage and disgust and despair into us as a child. Or, 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 there are many beings who are really difficult to be with. And do we blame the, you know, violent cave paintings or simply recognize this unwelcome neighbor knocking on our door? Oh, you again. I recognize you, I acknowledge your closeness to me, but I won't invite you in to tea. One student talked about her experience um, in retreat that uh, she was having a lot of aversion and that was a habitual place that her mind liked to go to judgments and aversion uh, toward people, other people in the retreat especially. And she described walking into the kitchen and there was a woman there who said something that she didn't like. And just seeing this aversion, just this wave of aversion, she said, it felt, it was almost like watching um, a squid squirt black ink into clear water. You know, just that. And seeing it like that, this is also a way of freeing our experience. And the aversion actually melted away. There was actually no need to kill it. Achan Sumedho talks about projecting ourself into consciousness that way. I love that expression, how we project ourself. In, we identify with our thoughts and project ourself into consciousness. If I'm anxious about myself, I'm going to have to somehow kill your judgments or views of me. If I practice cherishing life, then I can offer respect freely to myself and to you and have a deep sense of how you feel, too. The essential or secret understanding of this precept of cherishing all life 
is resting in that peace of allowing things to be what and who they are, freeing all beings. That true happiness and deep, deep peace where no thought of killing or getting rid of anything arises. Um, No thought of taking life, just seeing the transparency and transiency of everything that appears in our consciousness. The second precept is about not stealing, not taking that which is not given or practicing generosity. And literally, that's not a problem here. We don't have to keep our purses by us all the time and keep track of our keys and all the things we have to do outside of here. The essential attitude, the inner understanding, is that one of compassion um, and generosity. And one retreatant was wondering, how are we going to use these paramis? How do we add them to the instructions? And then she realized she was practicing with her breath, just practicing with the breath, and then hit a rough patch of something or other, and thought, okay, generosity means allowing this, just allowing it to be here, surrounding the breath with that space of dana, Not stealing time from ourselves. I remember in one of my early long retreats going in for an interview with Joseph and he asked me how much time I was spending sitting and how much time walking and I told him and he said, well, what are you doing the rest of the time? And I thought about that. What am I doing the rest of the time? So I said, well, I I guess I go to my room. And he said, what are you doing in your room? And I thought, what am I mostly doing in my room that I would tell Joseph? And I thought, I'm mostly moving my stuff from one place to another in my room, touching my stuff. Uh, So I told him that. I touch my stuff. I guess I just putter. (laughs) And he just looked at me. He said nothing. So I had to hear myself say that. Here I am. I moved heaven and earth to get to that retreat, to clear that time. And it just didn't really occur to me that maybe it was a waste of time to putter in my room just in case you didn't think of that. Um, You know, we find time on the cushion for all kinds of trivial pursuits, just from the beginningless past and endless future. Uh, And it's quite poignant, actually, the ways that we steal from ourselves. Um, Comparing mind, that's a big one. In Zen, we had an expression, Don't draw another's bow, don't ride another's horse. And it's so easy. Like Gil was talking about this morning, doing competitive walking. It's so easy to see who looks so composed, so still. And when the bell rings, they don't even move. They keep sitting. So we compare ourselves. um, And 
in this way, the mind is like, it can be like a thief. For example, um, we may have an experience and then the mind jumps in and appropriates it and, and hoards it and then takes it up again and again and again and again. How many times have you caught yourself thinking the same thought over and over? Or expectation can steal our experience by catapulting us forward away from the step-by-step practice into thoughts about the results of the practice or doubt. We have an experience. Something happens. Something appears in our consciousness. And maybe it's an insight. And then it's followed by doubt. It's not really an insight. You've thought that before. All kinds of doubt. And it, it robs us of that experience. So not stealing, appreciating what's been given, not having to steal from any other moment to supplement this one, being able to see that actually the ingredients of this moment are enough for us to wake up. I think Jack might have been talking about that Monday too, that the contents of this moment, this one, you know, like it, dislike it, neither the contents of this moment, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, are the contents of uh, our awakening right now. So we offer um, one way of appreciating our life is how we care for things, how we leave our shoes in the hall, how we leave our stuff in here, our shawls, our cushions. Um, I used to, after sitting, um, punch my zafu like a football. Um, How we do things like that. My friend Darman is a monk in Cambridge, and he, he loves to scuba dive. And even in New England, where it's very cold and kind of dark down there and not so much to see, but he would dive and he would um, do precept ceremonies for the fish under the water. And he, they would come. I told a friend and she said, some people will do anything to get followers. Um, But the fish would come. Because, again, it was that gift of fearlessness. He wasn't there to catch them or spear them or eat them. He was, and, and, you know, we're giving that same gift toward ourselves, as Adrian was talking about, but also that we don't, we aren't being somebody that other people or creatures have to fear. And it's like we're saying, you can trust me to each other and to the deer and, I'm not going to take anything from you that's not offered. I'm not going to hurt you. And, um, and the animals know this. They feel safe with us. I mean, the deer are just standing so close to us, munching around. It's so um, wonderful. They're, the turkeys know it. I think the lizards and frogs aren't quite so sure. <laughs> but, uh, but we're still not going to hurt them. Or like Gil was talking about this morning, um, instead of that 
searching for experience, having to, you know, borrow from some other moment. Um, I loved when you said, Gil, that you let your feet and lower legs be like a sponge. I, do you know SpongeBob? I thought, okay, this is SpongeGill. <laughs> this is how SpongeGill <laughs> does his practice. You know, receiving, not grabbing, experience, soaking it up. Um, and the secret meaning. You know, the Buddha was a wandering saint. He carried his begging bowl. He brought peace to all those whose lives he touched simply by his presence. He offers his bowl to us here, now. This huge retreat center, this beautiful hall. This expression of compassion and generosity that we're practicing in offers us a way to really give ourselves away, to give of ourselves freely in work meditation, in walking meditation, in sitting meditation, and to know that we're doing this for the benefit of everyone whose lives we touch. And this just has to be one of the greatest joys for us that as human beings, one of the greatest joys that we could have. The third precept, not to misuse our sexuality. And how to relate to our sexuality in retreat? So outerly, of course, we are going to refrain from flirting with each other, staring, leaving little flirty notes uh, for anyone. But innerly, we bring that compassion of understanding that it's the nature of sun to radiate light. It's the nature of wisdom to radiate compassion. It's the nature of the body to radiate sexual energy and warmth, of course. So not to make an object of this powerful energy, not to make an object of anyone else, not to suppress or shut down, but to honor the movement of life in the form of sexual energy. We don't have to go into the habitual reactions that we know so well. We can really stay open and feel this energy as the energy of life itself. And just, again, feeling it's like this. Sexual energy is like this. And that awareness is lucid and clear. we can at least form the intention to set aside our fantasies and return to the simplicity of the moment. Now we can train from the outside in by restraint and vows not to be naughty, not to masturbate in our rooms, not to intoxicate ourselves with fantasies, and so on and so on. But we can also train from the inside out, working from a compassionate trust in our own goodness, in our own integrity, in our intention as much as possible to rest in mindful awareness without 
magnetizing or grasping, um, and really being aware of our, where we get stuck. Um, attachment in this, to me, it, it's like stuckness or obsession. Because attachment in Western psychology, of course, is a good thing. It means connection. So, innerly, it's a powerful way to explore the forces of attraction and aversion and indifference. The second vow that we used to make at the end of the day, the Bodhisattva vow, um, we would say greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly. But that feels like kind of moralistic or Victorian language. Um, And I like attraction, aversion, and indifference rise endlessly. I vow to release them. This third precept is a great place to work with that. I want this. I don't want this. I want you. I don't want you. Just to see that irresistible pull and how these forces of attraction, inversion, indifference actually poison our experience of a moment of life. Clouding, like that squirt of ink, (laughs) clouding, or just enshrouding in fantasy. And as unpleasant as any given moment may be, and as pleasant as a fantasy may be, um, we know from our practice that the way to contentment and clarity is through presence, through intimacy with what is, with our own bodies, as Gil was talking about this morning, and with our own hearts. And actually, we have to work from the inside and the outside at the same time. And that's, I think, what I'm really hoping will be useful to you, because it was to me, is a way to see the precepts not as just really um, square, uptight, ungroovy, essentially uncool moralizing. It's not, it's not like that. It's actually an expression of what's possible for us as human beings, that how we can be um, truly happy and deeply peaceful, at ease in our bodies, at ease in our hearts, with empathy and caring for the untold suffering that is generated by derailed sexuality in our world. This is a poem from Rumi. It's called Two Wings. Observe the qualities of expansion and contraction in the fingers of your hand. Surely after the closing of the fist comes the opening. If the fingers were always closed or always open, the owner would be crippled. Your movement is governed by these two qualities. They're as necessary to you as two wings are to a bird. So when we can attune to the expansion and contraction of these feelings in a sensitive and gentle way, we can catch the energy or the wind um, in our sails and really just rest in respect for the power, the power and the magic of this endless movement of life itself, mating, birthing, dying, 
coming into being, rising and falling away. The fourth precept has to do with not lying, with the truth, with honesty. A friend of mine interviewed the senior CEO of a really successful company, and she said she keeps a plaque on her desk that says, in every business, there's always someone who knows exactly what is going on. That person should be fired. And this is a bit of advice she gives to would-be whistleblowers, you know, the ethical person who tells the truth about what's going on. Make sure you have another job lined up first. You know, here in retreat, it's, it's, we're in silence, so these things aren't so relevant. It's hard to lie when we're in silence, but we can lie to ourselves, and we can and we do, actually. Um, we're always adding on, trimming, rewriting, just changing the autobiography, because it's hard to face the truth sometimes. Uh, Albert Einstein wrote, the scientific method itself wouldn't have led anywhere. It wouldn't have even been born without a passionate striving for truth, for clear understanding. And the same can be said for Buddhist psychology, for our practice, where the focus is on what is directly experienced through introspection. And why we love mindfulness so much is that it tells the truth. It's like, um, it can be like a mirror reflecting what's happening in precisely the way that it's happening. So we're practicing being real, being authentic, having the courage to look in this mirror of mindfulness. I think mindfulness, actually, it could be defined as honesty, just simple unpretentious, real, and true. There's a wonderful nun named Ani Tenzin Palmo, the one who practiced in a cave for 12 years, and there's a wonderful book about her called Cave in the Snow. Um, years ago, when I lived in, in Boston, I lived at the Cambridge Buddhist Association and invited her to come and teach. She was coming to Boston, coming through town, and uh, she was doing some teaching on women in Buddhism. And I thought, this is going to be wonderful for all the women in our community, in our Sangha. And so we advertised her talk on women in Buddhism. And lots of people were excited. I was really excited to hear her. Um, And she came in you know, and the flyer was everywhere. She came into the shoe room and she took off her shoes. She sat there for a minute. And then she said to me, do you mind if I change the topic of my talk? I thought, yes, yes, I mind so much if you change the topic of your talk. Well, depending on what you would change it to, but I just said, of course not. And she said, I'd like to give a talk on the precepts. And I just thought, oh, no. (laughs) 
you know, uh, that's not what people signed up for. And um, only quite a bit later did I understand what she had done and that this was her manifestation of being a woman in Buddhism. It was pretty awesome, actually, that she was willing to sit down, sense the place she was in, use her intuition and trust her intuition about what was needed in that place. And P.S. She was exactly right. That she was free enough to follow her trust and follow her intuition in spite of what had been publicized, in spite of what people were expecting to hear. And it's a kind of discipline that I saw that she had, the discipline to follow her nose, to follow her sense of what was true and right and needed, in spite of um, what we all might have wanted to hear. That was her integrity. The fifth precept is about not giving or taking drugs. Um, and we always say, you know, if, if you have medication or something, it's not about that. It's about um, using drugs or alcohol to intoxicate ourselves. In the archaic language, it says to induce heedlessness, which, uh, which I really like. But to say it in the positive way, I vow to take in and consume that which nourishes peace, well-being, and joy for myself and my world. And we looked at it from both sides um, when we entered the retreat together. The philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson used to uh, greet friends that he hadn't seen for a long time by saying, what's become clear to you since we last met? During the course of retreat, many things uh, become clear to us. And we see clearly the result of the kind of nourishment that we're taking in. And it can be something very simple, like seeing the result of um, overeating at lunch in our sitting in the afternoon. We can see that clearly. Or it can be just sensing that growing commitment and clarity, that growing um, dedication to the Dharma after a whole month of practice. So one way this precept can be useful here in retreat is to look at the way we use substances to console, to numb, to soothe ourselves. And what is intoxicating? Those chocolate chip cookies at tea. What is it? It can be um, anything really. In Zen, they used to say, don't drink the wine of delusion. That we can intoxicate ourselves with our, um, our delusions and And we also had a meal verse that asked us to appreciate our food, that which we take in, 
Of course, it was for the literal food, the meal, but we could think of it as our mind food, too. And to know how it comes to us, the work of many hands, the offering of many forms of life. All of the discomforts or difficulties or challenges that come up here are an invitation to know how they come to us, to relax, to open, to trust that this crucible of retreat will strengthen you, strengthen us. have a friend who went to the monastery to live. He lived there for nine months. And he said that it was really amazing what happened after about six months. He stopped having any regret in his mind. That for six months living in the monastery, he really hadn't been able to do anything bad. And so there was really nothing to regret. And he had never realized how much lightness would come from not having regret. So that's a way that we can guide ourselves through this, uh, this particular mindfulness training, this fifth precept, too, is to say, okay, if I do this, or if I consume this, or if I, how, how long will I think about it afterwards? Because if it's something we're going to regret, that's a kind of suffering. We don't have to go there. We can really nourish that sense of joy and relief in the mind. And for those of you who've just started retreat, and maybe some of you who've already been sitting a month, one of the things that does come up is our remorse for things that we said or did that we wished we hadn't. So here we can nourish ourselves with that that we won't have to think about afterwards. We can feel the earth and the presence of our own being and practice a kind of spiritual sobriety. And this spiritual sobriety is It's the wisdom of receiving the moment as it is, just drinking it in straight up. It's not boring. It's intense, actually. This kind of sobriety allows us to fully feel life in all its details. Not numbing, not shutting down, allowing a larger experience to flow through us. And it's profound. It's profound to see how life reveals itself to our attentive presence. So this is the practice of sila, of goodness. I've been waiting to hear the sound of the frogs. They were singing before it rained. 
Can you hear them, anybody, tonight? I can't hear them sitting here. But we can let the sound of the frogs, any sound, the sound of the turkeys scraping their feathers or their claws scraping or their sudden gobble, gobble, gobble. Just let the sounds lead us into the stillness or to sit by the stream and to let the stillness of the retreat and of our, uh, of our sila, the quiet of our sila, just water our hearts. And doing this, surely the goodness, the goodness and mercy of sila will follow you, will follow us, all the days of our life here in the retreat. So let's just sit for a few minutes and contemplate our sila. Remembering that this is an invitation to incline our hearts toward recognizing and appreciating our own goodness, just some moments of goodness.
So enjoy your spongy walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.